This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much for the introduction. I am very grateful to be here. I am excited, too, to talk about this topic of mindfulness, because what I'm going to do is something that I think is sort of challenging in a way. I'm going to try to think about how would Thomas Aquinas answer a question that he never answered. There's lots of questions he didn't answer because obviously he lived and died in 1274, so he couldn't have answered every question that we have. But one question a lot of Catholics today have is a question about mindfulness. And so I'm going to try, at least at the beginning of this talk, to think about that question and to think about how Thomas Aquinas might answer that question. Now, we can analyze mindfulness from a lot of different perspectives, but given that this talk is sponsored by the Thomistic Institute, I thought it'd be appropriate to consider at least the ideas of Thomas. And we might want to, in the question and answer, consider how other people might answer the question. But just for the sake of argument, let's presuppose with that uh, supposition that we'll examine it from the perspective of Aquinas. So the first thing to do, I think, would be to define what mindfulness is. What do I mean by that term mindfulness? And what I'm going to appeal to is the uh, definition given by John Kabat-Zinn, who is arguably one of the most prominent proponents of mindfulness. Now, the first thing to say about mindfulness is mindfulness is not being empty-minded, clearing your head of everything. That is a common misunderstanding of what mindfulness is, that it's sort of removing all contents from your mind. But here is rather, it's not mind emptiness, but mindfulness. And here's how uh, Kabat-Zinn defines mindfulness. He says, quote, it's the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding experience moment by moment. So that's how he defines mindfulness. And again, this is not, uh, I'm choosing what I hope is a very representative and um, important advocate for mindfulness to define what mindfulness is. Now, mindfulness arises from Buddhist practice. And the question sometimes arises, well, is it uh, acceptable for non-Buddhists to practice mindfulness? And what I want to remind people of is that mindfulness actually can take different forms. So for instance, one form, one way of practicing mindfulness would be to sit statue still and then count your breaths up to five and then start over. And every time, and if you try to do this, you'll notice almost immediately your mind is going to wander off and you'll think about you know, what you're going to do later that day or you'll think about what happened yesterday or you'll make a, start making plans. And that's totally normal. But the idea is you'd go back to observing non-judgmentally your breath going in and out of your nose. And again, once you get to count of five, you start over and you just do this over and over again. So that's one way of practicing mindfulness. There are other ways too. For instance, if you were to eat a grape very slowly, to smell it and to taste it and to savor it and to chew it 30 times, that could be a mindfulness practice. So there's lots of different versions of mindfulness practice, um, but those are some of the ways to practice mindfulness. Now, academic studies, peer-reviewed studies have shown that there are some benefits to mindfulness for some people. And other studies have shown that there are some ways in which mindfulness may not be beneficial for some people. So I want to talk about both. So in terms of the benefits, some studies have indicated that mindfulness practice can help people with emotional control, with enhanced compassion for others, 
with reduction of pain, with increased concentration, with greater creativity, reduced anxiety, and some evidence shows that it's beneficial for depression. On the other hand, other studies have indicated that for some people, mindfulness can cause adverse side effects, such as feeling anxiety, loss of appetite, and insomnia. So I'm not an expert in the evaluation of these empirical studies, so I'm just reporting these things. It could be the case that new research will come out tomorrow, which will overturn the research that I just cited. But for the sake of argument, at least, let's move forward with the current state of the research. And my reading of the current state of the research would indicate that mindfulness might be compared to a kind of medication. And almost all medications are not good for everyone in all circumstances. So for me, I have asthma, and so I take uh, Flovent in the morning. And for me, my doctor thinks that's good. Now, for you, if you have asthma, it could be that you take the same medication, same dosage, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work so well for you. So it could be the case that mindfulness is a little bit like that, that it's something beneficial for me, maybe, and not beneficial for you. That could be. And that's really an empirical question. But what I want to consider today is not so much an empirical question, but an ethical question. Not a question of science and medicine, but a question of faith and philosophy. And the question is, how should this practice of mindfulness be evaluated from a Christian perspective, specifically from the perspective of Thomas Aquinas? And I think that there are four possible views you could have. And so I want to talk about each view. The first would be that mindfulness is intrinsically evil. Mindfulness practices are something that no person of faith should ever do, and all people of faith should avoid in all circumstances. A second possible view would be that mindfulness is not intrinsically evil, but nevertheless it is dangerous and what's called a near occasion of sin. So it's something that, yes, conceivably in some circumstances you could maybe do it, but in general, in normal circumstances, you wouldn't want to do it. So maybe you might liken it to uh, punching somebody in the face. Right? Could there be some circumstances where you should punch someone in the face as hard as you can? Yeah, there could be, you know, self-defense, but in general, everyday life, you don't want to walk around punching people in the face. That's something that is, you know, ethically problematic. A third view would be that mindfulness is ethically indifferent. So it would be something like walking or like scratching your chin. It is something that has no real ethical valence either in a positive way or a negative way and only would gain a moral, um, what, you, what would you say, only gains a moral evaluation based on the circumstances and the motivation for your walking or your drinking a glass of water or you scratching your chin. So those things are ethically indifferent in themselves. Now, you could imagine a circumstance where they aren't ethically indifferent. Like, let's say I arrange for an assassin. I say, well, when I scratch my chin like this, that's a signal for you to shoot him in the head. Okay, well, then it wouldn't be. But just consider just in itself, scratching your chin is ethically indifferent. Drinking a glass of water, ethically indifferent. Taking a walk. There's no real positive or negative. And then the fourth possibility is that mindfulness is something ethically good. So for Aquinas, at least, he thinks of some kinds of actions as in themselves good. So an example of that would be feeding the poor. He thinks of that as just a generically good kind of action. Now, that could go wrong, too, right? If you fed the poor with a bad intention, right? There's a famous line from a play, to do the right thing, but for the wrong reason. So if I'm feeding the poor, but I'm doing it solely to deceive you so that you 
get a, a false sense of my character, and then I can con you out of your money. Okay, well, then that action's not very good. Even though feeding the poor in itself, the means or the object chosen is good, my intention or motivation spoils that. So those are, for Aquinas at least, the four options of what the action could be, right? Intrinsically evil. It could be something that's dangerous and an occasion of sin, but not intrinsically evil. It could be something that is ethically indifferent. Or, finally, it could be something that is, as itself, a good kind of action. So let's consider the reasons people might give for each of these four views. So first, let's talk about the idea that mindfulness practice is intrinsically evil. Well, in the Catholic tradition, at least, for Aquinas, there are some kinds of actions that we should never, ever do. The Second Vatican Council talks about these as inherently unjust actions. So things like enslaving someone else, raping someone else, murdering someone else. Those are all examples of actions that, according to Aquinas, we should never do, even under facing death. So if a tyrant kidnaps you and says, look, I want you to murder your mother, and if you don't, I'm going to do whatever to you, Aquinas would say we should never intentionally kill an innocent person, even if a tyrant takes you and tries to force you to do something. So another another category of intrinsically evil acts would be, for Aquinas at least, certain acts of sexual unchastity. So for instance, I'm married. If I were to go commit adultery with some other woman, that for Aquinas would be an intrinsically evil act. I should never do that on Aquinas' view. Um, a third kind of category would be idolatry, that you are worshiping a false god. So if I were to not worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and instead I were to worship a golden idol, for Aquinas that would be an action I should never do, even under threat of death. And one other kind of intrinsically evil act for Aquinas, at least, would be lying. He has a view like Immanuel Kant that we should never lie. Okay. Now, if we turn to mindfulness practice, it seems that mindfulness practice falls into none of those categories of action. So mindfulness practice of itself is not a serious injustice harming the neighbor. It's not like murdering somebody. It's not like enslaving someone. It just isn't like that at all. Mindfulness practice can be done totally by yourself and doesn't directly have any effect on anyone else, let alone a very seriously evil effect on someone else. Mindfulness practice also doesn't fall into this category of sexual unchastity, right? You're not doing anything sexual if you're doing mindfulness practice. So it's not an act that's sexually uh, impure in some way. And is it idolatry? Well, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines idolatry in this way. Idolatry consists in divinizing what is not God. Man commits idolatry, the Catechism says, whenever he honors and reveres a creature in place of God, whether this be gods or demons, power, pleasure, race, ancestors, the state, money, etc. Now, is mindfulness idolatry? Are you divinizing some creature when you're counting your breath and observing your breath coming in and out? I don't see how. I don't think you're divinizing anything by counting your breath and observing carefully in a non-judgmental way, for instance, your breathing. So it's not idolatry. Well, could you say, okay, maybe it's intrinsically evil because it's of a non-Christian origin. It comes from Buddhism. Well, that's not going to work because Christians make use of all kinds of things that are of a non-Christian origin, like food preparation, like reading, like exercise. There's a, uh, tons of things that are non-Christian origin that Christians use with no problem at all. 
So the, simply the fact that it comes from a non-Christian origin, that doesn't at all show that it's intrinsically evil. Okay, so I think that Aquinas would say that there's no evidence at all to think that mindfulness practice is intrinsically evil. So what about is mindfulness practice dangerous? Is it a near occasion of sin? And there could be a couple different um, reasons someone might think that. One reason is that you might think that mindfulness could serve as a replacement for Christian spirituality. And Christian spirituality of its very nature is ordered to a personal relationship with God and, a, and personal relationships to other human beings. And so if you did mindfulness and then you said, well, I don't need to worry about praying to God and developing a relationship with God and, and developing my spiritual life anyway, then that would be problematic. But I don't see any reason to think that you'd have to use mindfulness in that way. And in fact, everything would be problematic if we're made as a simple substitute for enhancing your relationship with God. I mean, if someone said, I'm just going to read, you know, math textbooks. Well, there's nothing wrong with reading math textbooks, but if you were to replace everything in your life and you didn't care about loving God or neighbor and all you cared about is math, well, that would be a problem. So the fact is that, yes, it could be a replacement, but it need not be a replacement. And if it's not a replacement, then it doesn't seem to be dangerous or a near occasion of sin. Another reason to think that it might be dangerous and a near occasion of sin would be that maybe if you practice mindfulness, eventually this leads to giving up the idea of there being other selves. So some people have said that if you do mindfulness, basically you start to think that the, the uh, differences between yourself and other people, your differences between yourself and God, all those are going to kind of vanish and disappear and go away. And would that be problematic from a Christian perspective? Well, yeah, because if there's really no difference between me and other people, well, then that seems to undermine the idea that I should love my neighbor, because there really isn't such a thing as my neighbor, and even the idea that I should love God, because God isn't really some, someone else outside of myself that I could love. And so if you had this sort of, uh, what would you call it, uh, a kind of metaphysics where everything is just one, and all, this, all the, the differences we see are merely appearances, well, that, that I think would undermine a Christian perspective. Now, the trouble with this argument is that I am aware of no evidence at all that people who practice mindfulness, even people who practice mindfulness for years, end up thinking that they don't have a self and there's no distinctions between themselves and other people, themselves and God. So in principle, that could be a problem if it were true, but I don't think it's true. And in fact, I know people that are Christian that practice mindfulness for years and they don't think anything like that. So it'd be a little bit like making an argument um, against swimming. And you say, well, if you start swimming, you're going to start to believe eventually that, you know, you are just part of the water, and then you're going to start to, uh, you know, not bother to breathe, and then you're going to die in the pool. And, well, yeah, I suppose that could be a problem if that's what really happened when you went swimming a lot. But, again, there's no evidence at all that people that go swimming tons have anything like that happen to them. A third difficulty someone could raise is, well, look, if you do mindfulness practice, for some people at least, this induces a kind of feeling of peace a kind of inner harmony, an inner serenity. And this could be problematic because we, if we don't have a restless heart, we won't journey towards God. There's something good about having a restless heart. And so mindfulness might kind of calm that down, and then if it calms it down, it might inhibit your growth in holiness, your movement towards God. Now, the trouble with this argument is it seems to be an equally good argument against exercise. Uh, I'm sure if you've exercised before, you felt the experience of you have a good hard workout 
and you feel great. You feel very much at peace. But it would be a bizarre argument to say, well, you should never work out, or there's something dangerous and unchristian, and it's a near occasion of sin to work out, because after you work out, you have these sort of feelings of harmony and peace. So that argument, I don't think, works. The last one I want to consider is this, that maybe mindfulness is problematic because in mindfulness you're supposed to withhold moral judgment. You're supposed to withhold all judgment. You're supposed to just observe, for instance, your breath coming in and out of your out of your nose. And by observe, I mean, like, not looking, but like feeling it coming in and out of your, your nose. And maybe the argument is, well, if you withhold judgment like this, this is going to lead to a kind of a moral relativism where you withhold judgment from everything. And you see people getting enslaved and you're like, I'm not judging that. And you see people, you know, raping other people and say, oh, I'm not going to judge that either. But that argument too, I don't think really works because we do withhold judgment about all kinds of matters. Think about people who do math. If you're doing math and you're adding things up, in terms of math, there's no difference when you add up 5,000 you know, murders and 5,000 murders equal 10,000 murders, or if you're adding up $5,000 donated to charity and $5,000 donated to charity equal $10,000. In other words, when you're doing math, you consider just the quantities and you totally with, withhold judgment, as it were, as to whether this is a good or bad thing. You're just considering just the quantities. And the same thing's true when you're playing sports, right? If you're, for instance, trying to hit, hit a fastball, Right? You can't, if you're going to hit it, you can't be thinking about anything else. You have to withhold judgment about the pitcher's character and withhold judgment about is it you know, just that we're enjoying this baseball game when people are hungry. You have to withhold judgment about all those things. And if you're going to hit the baseball, solely, like a laser beam, focus on hitting the baseball. So there's nothing wrong with focusing in a certain way and withholding judgment about all kinds of other things. Now, yes, it would be a problem if you withheld judgment your whole life and never made an ethical judgment. But again, practicing mindfulness for most people is doing it for 15 minutes, a half an hour, right? We're not talking about the rest of your life you're just sitting there counting your breaths. That would be problematic for other reasons. So if mindfulness is not intrinsically evil, and if mindfulness is not dangerous and a near occasion of sin, well then for Aquinas, at least two possibilities left. Either it is ethically indifferent or it is a potential prayer. So if it's true that it's ethically indifferent, if it is like swimming, or it's like taking a walk, or it's like stretching, all those, I think, according to say, are ethically indifferent kinds of activities. Now, if that's true, well, then it could be made into a prayer. Because any legitimate activity can be made into prayer. What do I mean? Anything, for instance, doing a good job as a student, studying really hard, that can be something that's offered to God. Cleaning up the kitchen, that can be offered to God. Going out with a friend and listening to the sad story of how, you know, her mother is being a total jerk to her and, you know, comforting her and trying to be a good friend, that can be a prayer. Because what is prayer? Prayer is raising your mind and heart to God. And when you do activities, any kind of legitimate activity that's not sinful, you can always do that with the intention of raising your mind and heart to God, serving God in this activity. Whatever it is, making hamburgers, cleaning out the garage, doing heart surgery, it doesn't matter what it is, it could, if it's, if it's not a bad thing, be offered to God. So does the non-Christian origin of mindfulness, because it does arise from Buddhism and it is endorsed by secular psychology, would that rule it out as a kind of way of praying? 
Well, there's a letter from uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI, that actually addresses exactly this problem. And it is found in, uh, I'll read the section that's relevant for us. Here's what it says. This is from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and signed by Cardinal Ratzinger and then uh, endorsed by uh, St. John Paul II. So it says, the majority of the great religions which have sought union with God in prayer have also pointed out ways to achieve it. Just as the Catholic Church rejects nothing of what is true and holy in these religions, neither should these ways be rejected out of hand simply because they're not Christian. Let me say that again. These ways should not be rejected out of hand simply because they're not Christian. On the contrary, one can take from them what is useful so long as the Christian conception of prayer, its logic and requirements are not obscured. And in the Catholic tradition, at least, we have already done this with many things. For instance, I'm wearing a wedding ring, right? This was originally a pagan symbol, but it's brought into the Christian liturgy. At my nuptial mass, the rings that my wife and I wear were blessed by the priest, special prayers said about them. So this is, uh, you might call it a sacramental. It's not a sacrament, but it's a sacramental. It's something holy that reminds us of, reminds me of my promises of marriage. Another example of that would be Christmas trees, right? Originally of pagan origin. Uh, the use of incense in worship, originally of pagan origin. So the fact is the church already has, in many, 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 many cases, borrowed stuff of pre-Christian origin. And there's nothing wrong with that. That enriches our tradition. And the reason it enriches our tradition is what Aquinas said. Aquinas said that all truth is ultimately from God, whoever utters it. All truth is ultimately from God, whoever utters it. And that's why Aquinas read so seriously the great pagan philosopher Aristotle. Just because he was pagan doesn't mean he's all wrong about everything. He might have some really good insights. That's why he read the Muslim philosophers of Averroes and Avicenna. Because just because they're Muslim doesn't mean that they're all out to lunch. They may have something to teach us. That's why he read Stoic philosophers like Seneca and Cicero. So Thomas made a big effort to try to gain wisdom from wherever it was. And he never read Confucius, but if he had, he would have tried to gain wisdom from Confucius. He never read Latsu, but if he had, he would have tried to gain wisdom from Latsu. And he wasn't familiar with Buddhist writings, but if he had been, he would have tried to gain wisdom from those sources. And so in the Christian tradition, the Catholic tradition at least, we have to be discerning. That doesn't mean we take on everything that whoever says without a proper discernment and a shifting of it and a consideration of it, because there indeed are things that are corrupting of Christian belief and practice. But simply the fact that this comes from a different tradition, that alone is not, at least according to this document, that alone doesn't mean it should be rejected out of hand, as if, oh, it is from Buddhism, so therefore it must be horrible and wrong. No, that, that's too simple. Moreover, in the Christian tradition, there are practices that arguably, at least, are mindfulness practices. So let me talk about a couple of those. One is from St. Ignatius Loyola. And St. Ignatius Loyola, in the spiritual exercises, his most famous work of guiding people in growth, in spiritual growth, here's what he says in, in one of the passages. He says, the third method of prayer is that with each breath in and out as one has to pray mentally, saying one word of the Our Father, 
or of another prayer when it's being recited, so that only one word be said between one breath and another. So arguably, this seems like a kind of mindfulness practice, right? You breathe in, and then you say our, you breathe out, you breathe in, say Father, breathe out, breathe in, who, etc. So this is not some crazy heretical person, uh, not, certainly not a Buddhist. This is St. Ignatius Loyola. Here's another example of arguably a mindfulness practice. Um, and this comes from the uh, same document I mentioned earlier that was signed by Cardinal Ratzinger. Uh, he is talking about what's called the Jesus Prayer. And the Jesus Prayer is used more in the East than the West, but is used in the West too. But it's basically where you say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, on breathing in, have mercy on me, on me a sinner when breathing out. Right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, breathe in, and then have mercy on me a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner, when you breathe out. And here's what the letter says about that. The exercise of the, quote, Jesus prayer, which, for example, adapts itself to the natural rhythm of breathing, can, at least for a certain time, be of real help to many people. And there are well-known Catholics like Bishop Robert Barron who use the Jesus prayer on a regular basis. So there's nothing, again, nothing heretical or wrong and we have another way of praying that links up uh, our praying with our, with our breathing. So does that mean mindfulness practice has to be a prayer? Well, no. It can be just a practice you do, like people swim or people do jujitsu, jiu people uh, journal, people go for walks. There's all kinds of practices that are good for our health, like those practices of physical exercise. And there can be all kinds of practices that are good for our mental health. Now, I mentioned before, the empirical research on this is not totally straightforward, as if mindfulness is always good for everyone in every circumstance. But in my reading of the literature, the majority view seems to be that for most people, there are some really good benefits for mindfulness. So if what I've said is correct, it would be true then that for Aquinas, mindfulness would not be intrinsically evil. And for Aquinas, mindfulness would not be dangerous and a near occasion of sin. And that for Aquinas, either it could be just a neutral practice, just like someone just walking or drinking a glass of water or going swimming, or it could be a practice that could be made into a form of prayer. So let me finish the talk by uh, addressing the second part of the talk, uh, which is positive psychology, because what I'm talking about is mindfulness, positive psychology, and Christian faith. So I've talked about the mindfulness and rather briefly, I'll talk about positive psychology. So positive psychology is a branch of psychology that's an empirical investigation of human flourishing. So for most of the history of psychology, psychologists looked at things like depression, anxiety, these sort of problems. But positive psychology wants to look at the other end of the spectrum. and wants to look at resilience and flourishing and people who are able to use their signature strengths, etc. And when I uh, looked into this, uh, this new field of, of positive psychology, what struck me was an enormous overlap between the empirical findings that positive psychology came up with and the practices that the Christian church uh, advocates that we do. So let me just talk about a few of these. One of them, and maybe the most important, is forgiveness. The empirical research on forgiveness, there's been many studies done on this, show that forgiveness is literally good for your physical health. 
you're less likely to have a heart attack. You're more likely to sleep well. You're less likely to have disease if you're someone who forgives. And the reason for this is physiological, right? Let's say I hate your guts and I'm filled with anger at you. And every time I see you, I, my, my stomach gets in a knot and I clench my fists and I get in a fight or flight physiology. Now that's fine if we're about to fight, but if I'm in this kind of fight or fight physiology for you know, weeks and months and even years, that is not good for my body. And so forgiveness is a way of letting that go. Forgiveness you might define as the choice or decision not to seek revenge. Right? So you do something horrible to me, and I say, you know what? I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm going to treat you with basic human respect. That doesn't mean I have to be your best friend and pal around with you, but I'm going to treat you with basic human respect and not try to seek revenge for what you did to me. Now, as you know, of course, in the Christian tradition, forgiveness is absolutely central. And we think about the prayer that Jesus gave his disciples, the Our Father, embedded right in there, right? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus, as he was dying, one of the last things he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So I found it very interesting that the empirical psychology has, as it were, given good evidence for the beneficial nature of this fundamental Christian practice. Now, another uh, practice that psychologists, positive psychologists have studied a lot is gratitude. Gratitude is a way of looking at life and being thankful for the goods that you find in your life. And the research on gratitude is quite extensive and it shows all kinds of enormous benefits for people that are grateful. And for us as Catholics, this too is really at the very heart of our faith, this idea of gratitude. Uh, we as Catholics celebrate as our central liturgical act, the Eucharist. And the Eucharist is just a Greek word for thanksgiving. Think about the last words said at every single mass throughout the world. Thanks be to God. Those are the words that the church uh, has echoing in our minds as, as the liturgy ends. And thankfulness is something that is greatly enhanced by a life of faith. Because if you don't think God exists, the good things in your life could be just random accidents. But if God exists, there's a good giver behind all the beautiful things in your life. And so there's so much more to be grateful for. A final thing that the positive psychology folks have talked about in terms of the importance of, uh, they've talked about the importance of serving others. So there's a famous study done by Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, and he divided his class into two groups. And so one group of students, he said, I want you to go do something fun, right? Go to the movies, go get some ice cream, just have some fun. And then the other group of students, he said, I want you to do something altruistic. Go to the old folks' home and go there on Saturday and pray with them, hold their hand, be kind to them. And both groups went out and had, did their projects and they came back. And the first group reported, you know, that was great. I saw the new James Bond movie, had some ice cream. That was a lot of fun. But basically, the enjoyment they had was rather short-lived, right? Once you eat the ice cream, it's gone. And once the film stops rolling, it's gone. But the people who served others, the people who loved others and gave themselves as volunteers, those people reported lasting joy from what they did. And this is a sort of finding that's shown over and over and over again, that human beings, you might say, are geared to love. And to love someone means to give what's good to them, to will their good 
for their sake. And if that's true, you can see how altruistic behavior is going to be more satisfying at some level than just having fun, going to movies, eating ice cream, things like that. Now, of course, as Catholics, you know, this is absolutely central for us. Pope Francis has really emphasized again and again that we are to be people that should show mercy to others. And the corporal and spiritual works of mercy are great, great ways of doing that, right? To feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit those who are imprisoned. And we can broaden them out to help those in need generally. And all of us know people in need. I would guess, I bet anything, there's people in your family that are in need. Almost all of us know people that are lonely, people that need a friend, people that we can cheer up, people that we could make life a little better for. And all those ways are ways that we're called as Christians to serve. Because if we're going to be Christians, what does that mean? That means that the life of Jesus lives in us. Jesus is not for us just a teacher like Socrates. Socrates is great, but Socrates is dead. Jesus is more than just Socrates and more than Aristotle, more than Thomas Aquinas. Jesus is alive and is a life that we can participate in and live in. If scripture is right, he's the head and we're part of the body. So to be Christian is not just to have an ideal like Socrates, but it's to live the life of Christ and to allow Christ to live in us and through us to serve others. So positive psychology in a certain way has validated and shown the insight and the beneficial nature of certain fundamental Christian practices. But I would say positive psychology is not enough. And part of the reason positive psychology is not enough is that positive psychology has no answer for sin. I think that any honest person can recognize that they fail to live up to their own ideals. I think every honest person has that insight. And we as Catholics are incredibly lucky because when we have that insight, we have a way concretely of dealing with this discrepancy between who I actually am and who I know I ought to be. We have a way, as it were, of taking out the garbage, right? All human beings make garbage, right? You eat a banana, you got the banana peel left over. But we have a way of taking out that garbage, of beginning anew and starting over. And it's called confession. So many people struggle with guilt. So many people struggle with shame. They know they're not who they should be, but they don't quite know how to unburden themselves of this. And psychology can't do this for us. At best, psychology could assuage feelings of guilt or feelings of shame, but the reality of guilt and the reality of shame are something that psychology just can't, can't deal with. But Christianity, the work of Jesus, is precisely about dealing with that dealing with guilt, dealing with shame, and dealing with, in a certain way, the most fundamental problem of human existence, which is death. We know we're going to die, and we know that those that we love so much are going to die. And at best, psychology can help us deal with the feelings of grief, but they really don't have any answer to the reality of death, which takes away our human happiness here on Earth. But as Christians, we have this hope of the resurrection, and this is incredibly important, especially when we're suffering. Because no matter how horrible things get for you, and I hope they don't get horrible for you, but they could, if we have Christian hope, we can always say, well, this terrible suffering I'm going through does not ruin everything. This terrible suffering I'm going through is not going to last forever. And ultimately, there's something that can be done about it. Namely, God 
intervening and giving us eternal life. So I have an enormous admiration for psychological science, but psychological science is not enough. In any case, what I try to do today is talk, uh, in the first part of the talk, about the nature of mindfulness and whether it is acceptable from a Christian point of view, specifically a Thomistic point of view. And then the second part of the talk today, I try to talk a little bit about positive psychology and the way in which positive psychology um, reinforces, uh, provides evidence in favor of certain fundamental Christian practices like forgiveness, like gratitude, like serving your neighbor. And finally, I try to talk a little bit about why I believe positive psychology is insufficient for giving us what the human heart really desires. So thank you for your attention. I'd be happy to entertain any questions you may have. Yes, sir. So, um, one potential danger, I, I, I'm obviously no expert in mindfulness, but it seems to me that one potential danger is it can orient the person on oneself. Um, so, you know, sometimes in the news I see some celebrity who's starting to talk a lot about mental health, and that's a good thing, but then sometimes a few months go by and you realize, oh, in the last few months all they've done is talk about themselves. Yeah. Right? And so it seems like kind of fundamental difference between mindfulness versus prayers her fundamentally is taking oneself out of yourself. Mindfulness seems to kind of, you know, turn you towards oneself. So my question is, you know, how do we fit that in with like kind of the moral evaluation of it? Is that maybe just a perversion of mindfulness, and mindfulness is something a lot more pure? Well, I guess what I'd say is mindfulness, on my view at least, is a little bit like exercise. And could you do exercise in a very selfish way? Yes, you certainly could. I mean, I could make my life, like I do jujitsu, like I totally love it. And I could make my life all about doing jujitsu. I'm like, honey, I can't help you, I'm doing jujitsu. And I can't help the kids with the homework, sorry, I'm off to jujitsu. And, and my whole life could just revolve around that, and that would be really selfish. On the other hand, it seems to me that moderate exercise is not an obstacle to helping others. I think actually moderate exercise is a good means to helping others. Because if I'm healthy, I can be a better father, a better husband, a better professor. I'm not sick as much. I'm not you know, having to care for my health in an intensive way because I care for a little bit each day. So I think caring for your physical health with moderate exercise is not selfish, but actually is something that you could do precisely for the sake of loving others. Because if I'm sick and I'm physically unfit and I die at you know, 53 because I had a heart attack because I just let myself go, and that doesn't help my family at all. Whereas me staying in shape and me trying to be fit, that actually does help my family. And I think the same thing's true of taking care of our mental health. Yes, you're right. You could have someone who's so absorbed in their own mental health that they just you know, spent five hours a day journaling and, and do mindfulness practice for three hours. And you know, their mom's like, honey, I really need help. No, no, I've got you know, more mindfulness practice. Sorry, mom, you know, drive yourself to the hospital. Well, yeah, of course, but that's, but, right, but that's literally true of everything. There's no legitimate activity that couldn't be misused and put to a, uh, you know, overdone, right? We need moderation in, in, in virtually everything, right? That is to say, you know, swimming could be done in an immoderate way in the wrong circumstances with the wrong intention to the neglect of other things. So I think your point is absolutely right. You could take cultivation of your own mental well-being to unreasonable and uh, uncharitable extremes so that you're, you're just sort of monitoring yourself and spending excessive amount of times on this. But I think a moderate taking care of your mental health or a moderate taking care of your physical health is not only okay, 
I think it's actually a duty. Like, I think you, you should do that because our bodies are a gift from God. And we have a serious responsibility to take care of this gift, to try to make ourselves reasonably healthy and so we can love others. And the same thing's true of our mental health. Like, it doesn't help anyone to, you know, if I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm freaking out, I, I'm not going to be able to serve others very well, right? In fact, that's something that drives me into myself. If I'm having a huge panic attack and I'm totally depressed and I'm not just going to be curled in on myself and so concerned about my well-being, if I'm feeling solid physically and mentally, well, then I'm really in a good position to reach out to others and try to help them. So I, I agree with you. There could be an excess of it. It could, could be taken too far. But I do think that a moderate use of these means to keeping ourselves mentally and physically healthy is perfectly acceptable and even a duty. Not that mindfulness itself is a duty, but taking care of your mental health is a duty. Yes. Yeah, hi. Um, thank you for your lecture. I really enjoyed it. Um, I actually, I was thinking of the Jesus prayer when you were talking about mindfulness. Um, but the difference that I see between the Jesus prayer and on the notions that I've had about Buddhist um, mindfulness is that with the Jesus prayer, you're filling yourself with God. Um, and you're emptying yourself of everything else, but you make sure that you're replacing that with Jesus. With Buddhist mindfulness, it's more emptying yourself of everything, um, and you're not replacing it with anything. So there, um, I guess I was wondering, could that be a solid argument to say, well, it's, it's a near occasion of sin, because something bad could fill it, or it actually might be intrinsically evil, because um, evil is the absence of God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think it depends on how you define mindfulness. So the definition of mindfulness that's given by uh, Kabat-Zinn was not a uh, emptying of your mind, but a mindfulness. So mindfulness, at least as he understands, is not you're getting rid of everything in your mind and just opening yourself to, up to whatever happens, but rather that you're acutely sensitive to the reality of what actually is happening. So think of the idea of like eating a grape really slowly. And like you're looking at the grape and you're smelling the grape and you're chewing it very slowly and you're tasting every single bit of the grape. That's not an emptying, that's really a focusing on the reality of what actually is there. So is that a prayer? Well, I would say no, just consider in itself eating a grape is not a prayer, or even eating a grape mindfully, except for in the sense that there any legitimate activity could be made into a prayer if done with the right intention, right? So you could eat food with the intention of glorifying God in eating food. So what would that mean? Well, for instance, being filled with gratitude, right? I mean, if you eat a grape, there are countless people who made that happen, probably, unless you grew the grape in your own backyard. But in reality, probably, there was the farmer who planted the thing and all the people who cultivated the vine and then all the people that picked that and then the people who took in the truck and the people at the grocery store and the checkout lady and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's, I, who knows? There might be 500 people who contributed to you eating that grape. And it seems to me you could be very mindful of all the people who contributed to this great experience you have of, of eating it. So that's not really emptying yourself and like saying, hey, whatever happens, happens. I want, come on in, whatever's out there. That's, that's really not mindfulness, I think. That's mind emptying. But mindfulness is supposed to be this sort of very focused concentration on the reality of things. And so that seems like 
arguably it could be very much an appreciation of God because at the end of the day, the grape isn't only the result of human hands, it's ultimately the result of God. Um, yeah. So you gave, you gave an example of potential mindfulness with eating the grape. You think about like how the grape was made, and that eventually brings you back to God, because of course everything was ultimately made by God. Um, but then you also gave the example of just focusing, like when you're breathing, just focusing on, on not, not your breaths, but the experience of the yeah. breath and the observation of the breath. And to me, these seem like fundamentally different things because mm -hmm. one of them you're focusing just on the phenomena and just, just the sensory, like what, what you're feeling, whereas the other ones you're reaching out through that to, to the being that, that, that you're sensing. So Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So, so the practice of mindfulness with the grape, say, would be simply focusing on, say, the smoothness of the grape when it's in your mouth or the kind of juices that come out when you chew on it, or whatever. So it's like really focused just on the, a sensory experience. And yeah, if you, were spec if you were moving from that sensory experience to practice gratitude, then that's, that's kind of a different intellectual move, where you're saying, okay, well, how did I get this grape? From Vons. Okay, well, what was involved in the grape getting to Vons? Well, the you know, people had it put on the shelf and had to be driven here. So that's a different, different thing. So, I don't think they're incompatible. I mean, they are incompatible in the sense that you couldn't do both of those activities at exactly the same time, right? If you're totally focused on exactly how the grape tasted, that would get in the way of kind of considering all the ways that other people helped you get the grape, ultimately that God gave you the grape. Um, so I just think of those are two different exercises of the mind, that one is very directly focused on the current sensory experience of things, and the other one is more speculative kind of reasoning out how this got here. So, no, I think you're right. Those are, those are two different things. Yes, sir. So, kind of in line with what people are saying, you know, it seems that there's nothing necessarily dangerous per se about mindfulness. But could you make the argument that there is something dangerous about confusing mindfulness and prayer? Because, you know, sometimes there, there are applications, as you mentioned, there are applications of Christian prayer that seem to mirror mindfulness. But there's a very, very critical difference in that it seems that prayer is about taking yourself to God, right? Um, whereas mindfulness, it's all about kind of bringing it all full circle back to yourself. And if you were to confuse those two while doing prayer, that seems like the consequences could be disastrous. Yeah, so that seems right. So prayer, at least Christian prayer, is about raising your mind and heart to God. So prayer is always relationship-oriented, you might say. Whereas mindfulness does not need to be relationship-oriented at all. If I'm just eating a grape in this mindful way or counting my breaths in a mindful way, that doesn't have any direct necessary relationship to God or to other people or to anyone. So that seems right. And then does that mean it couldn't be a prayer? Um, it depends. So if you think that anything legitimate could be a prayer, for instance, running could be a prayer or studying can be a prayer. There's a famous saint who said, an hour of uh, study is an hour of prayer for the modern apostle. So the idea was, if you really are studying, this actually is a prayer. So if that idea is right, and, it, and that idea, I assume, isn't limited simply to study. In other words, the same thing would apply to doing the dishes, the same thing would apply to mowing the lawn. Any legitimate activity done with the proper intention is a kind of prayer. Well, if that's true, then you could do mindfulness as a prayer, but you wouldn't need to do that. In other words, you could do mindfulness as an atheist. 
So an uh, example of that would be Sam Harris. So he's an atheist, but he does these mindfulness practices. So there, it has no connection, no necessary connection to God or to, or to faith, just like study doesn't, right? There's atheists who study. There's no necessary connection to God. But could a Christian study and make that study a kind of prayer? Yes. Now, would that substitute for, you might say, prayer strictly speaking? I would say no. I would say someone who's just, you know, offered, just lived a regular life and said, well, I'm offering it all to God. I'd say that'd be not enough, right? Like I think, in other words, I think the Christian life requires every single day time dedicated solely to actual prayer. That is actually trying to communicate with God, trying to deepen the relationship with God. And the form that takes, it seems to me, is, is it can vary from person to person. So for it's a little bit like exercise. If you're going to be a healthy person, you need to get physical exercise. You just are not going to be healthy long term if you never exercise. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe it's walking, maybe it's, you know, boxing lessons, maybe it's riding a bike, maybe it's swimming, maybe it's jujitsu. It could be all kinds of things. But you need to have exercise on a regular basis. And I think that prayer is, as it were, the exercise of the soul. And you need it, I would say, every single day. If you don't pray every single day, there's a real problem. Every single day. At least 15 minutes. I think it's absolutely essential. And, and not just for my, not counting your breaths, not eating a grape, actual communicating with God. And again, that could be, it would vary from person to person. So for one person, they'd like, I love to say the rosary. Great. Someone else, I love to read scripture slowly, read a gospel scene and imagine myself in the scene with Jesus and imagine what he would say to me. Great. Somebody else may be doing the Psalms. Wonderful. Maybe somebody else doing the Jesus prayer. Terrific. Somebody else, Eucharistic adoration. Great. Again, it's like exercise. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all that everyone needs to do this, everyone needs to do that. No, no, you know, it, it's, up, it's really between you and God at the end of the day. But I do think if you don't exercise, I mean, if you don't pray, that is a catastrophe, spiritual catastrophe every single day. Any other questions? I was curious about um, your view on this. When you were talking about positive psychology, you mentioned forgiveness and other things, so yeah. good works and charity and make you feel good. So some of those other things seem to be more things you can actually, if you were com commanded to do them, or you could rationalize it and say, it's good for me to do those things. Yeah. Um, forgiveness seems to be something beyond or different. It seems to be something that's not clearly a matter of choice. Yeah, that's a good point. And I didn't talk about this, uh, but I can now. A distinction that's drawn in psychology between emotional forgiveness and decisional forgiveness. So I did, when I defined forgiveness, I defined it as decisional forgiveness. So I said it's a choice to treat the wrongdoer, the person who offended me and harmed me, with basic human respect and not seek revenge. And that is a choice. You can just decide, I'm going to Treating with basic human respect, I'm not going to seek revenge. But emotional forgiveness goes beyond that. That's when he walks up to me and I feel fine. I'm not upset anymore. I'm just totally at peace and, hey, how you doing? You know, maybe we even were friends afterwards and we restore our relationship. So that's a different thing. That's a deeper thing. 
So decisional forgiveness can be just a choice that you make, a decision you make, an act of your free will. But emotional forgiveness is more challenging. So how do you get to emotional forgiveness? Well, there's actually um, uh, psychological books that talk about this. Um, I have a book called The Gospel of Happiness that talks about this. But there's a number of different ways to do this. One of the keys to most ways of doing this is very challenging. And that is to put yourself in the wrongdoer's shoes and try to imagine what this person could have been thinking and what they were seeking to do in the moment that to their deluded and messed up mind in the moment made sense. And that's very hard to do. So I give an example, not from my life, but from uh, one of the foremost researchers in, in psychology, Everett Worthington. So his mother was murdered. I mean, you talk about something that would be hard to forgive, brutally murdered. And that's just like, I imagine if someone killed my mom, I'm not sure I could forgive the person. I mean, that's just like, that's catastrophically bad, obviously. He did forgive the person. And so part of his process of forgiveness was to put himself in the shoes of the killer. So he thought about it like this. Um, I'm a young guy, and as a young, you know, when I was just a, 13 years old, I started to use drugs. And everybody in the neighborhood was using drugs. And I just thought, oh, yeah, it's all the cool kids do it. I'm, I'm going to try it. Oh, it'll be fine. And so I got hooked on drugs. And then I'm getting more and more addicted. Now I'm 19. I've been doing drugs pretty hardcore for five years, every day. And I'm desperate for money. And I see an empty house. And I think, well, this is perfect. I'll go in this house. I'll just get something that I need, because I need this drugs. It's, I'm really desperate. And I'll get out of there, and that'll be it. So I break into the house. And all of a sudden, this lady comes out from the back room and sees me. I already have been arrested twice. California, three strikes and you're out. I'm going to go to prison for life. And here this lady has seen me. I have no, uh, there's no way I can get out of this. I'm like trapped. I'm going to literally have my entire life ruined by this old lady. And in, in desperation, I strike out and kill her. Out of a perverted kind of sense of self-defense. Because I don't want to go to prison for life. Now, when you think about it from that perspective, that does not justify it. There's nothing that justifies murdering an innocent person. But you can understand how, especially a young person with a drug problem and brought up in a terrible situation and desperate not to go to prison for the rest of their life, you could see how, I could see how I could do something like that. If I, if I had been raised that way and I had been addicted to drugs and hardcore drug user for five years and I was going to go to prison for the rest of my life, and maybe it was even high at the moment he did it, I could see how... In human weakness, I could do something horrible like that. Again, that's not to justify it. It is 100% wrong to murder someone. But it is to put yourself in the shoes of the wrongdoer and try to understand their distorted, misperceived good that they were seeking in the moment. So for Worthington, that was one of the ways he moved towards forgiveness, is to try to put himself in his enemy's shoes, as it were. And he did. He did. He forgave that person. And many people do. Think of a famous case is uh, St. John Paul II, right? He was shot three times in his front yard. And he went later, when he got out of the hospital, and forgave the person who killed him, or tried to kill him. So, I mean, that's, it's very hard. And, you know, would I have the courage to be able to do that? I don't know. But I hope I would.
I certainly am called to have that kind of courage. But emotional forgiveness is, is tough, and it usually is a process. It usually isn't just an overnight thing, but it is possible. People have done it, and, and it certainly is possible. And psychology, I think, can help us move towards emotional forgiveness. The decisional forgiveness is easier. Just to make a choice, I'm going to treat this person with basic respect and not seek revenge. That's much easier. But the emotional forgiveness, it's definitely a challenge for sure. All right. Well, thank you very much.